Lion Hot Radio 107.3 FM on a Saturday morning. It's the movie hour. It's Daniel Mumby. Good morning. Good morning, Richard. How are I'm, you? I'm fine. Better than I was last night. Yes. <laughs> How are you today? I'm pretty good, yeah. I mean, I was saying to you before we came on the programme that my hair is getting towards the stage where it doesn't matter how hard you comb it in the morning, it kind of goes in its own shape. But otherwise, I'm fit as a fiddle. Yes, and mine's going the same way. So, it's as well, uh, you're only listening to this in sound. This <laughs> anyway... And it Playhouse this week, and we do need to talk a bit about the film, because uh, it's fallen out of the top ten, I think, hasn't it? Okay. It's um, Wednesday, Friday and Saturday. Uh, Wednesday, 2 o'clock and 7.30. Friday, 2 o'clock and 7.30. Saturday, just 7.30. It's the best exotic Marigold Hotel. Are there still tickets left for any of the performances? Uh, just the Saturday evening. Now. Right. Well, I think, you know, get them while you can, because it is, I do quite like it. it. You know, John Madden, who's a very reasonable director, is the guy who did Shakespeare in Love, you know, which is... The the definition of a decent film and i like the fact that it's taken a lot of money despite having a kind of a less youth orientated cast and i think yes there are problems with it you know lots of people have complained about its depiction of india in terms of being sort of touristy or export driven but actually it's quite charming so as i say tickets are available for saturday night uh, the um wednesday and friday ones are all sold out the playhouse box office number is annick 510785 and i'm booked to go next saturday so good I'll, saturday after i'll tell you how it went good idea so uh, and we're in the back row that's what you need at the movies there's a song about that wasn't there yes i seem to remember there was <laughs> yes. so we find that for the end right not much <laughs> going on at berwick this week lots of live performances at the mortings but on monday evening at eight o'clock they've got safe house yeah which is um the denzel washington and ryan reynolds film the, the problem with safe house is that it kind of starts out wanting to be a sort of Silence of the Lambs-esque character study in Denzel Washington playing someone who's trying to get inside Ryan Reynolds' head. Yeah. But then it very quickly descends into lots of running, jumping and shouting with occasional pockets of the character stuff. And, no, I, I have no problem with running, jumping and shouting, but when you've got someone of Denzel Washington's calibre in your film, you need yeah. to do a lot more with it than that. Right. On to Thursday evening, 7.30, it's Act of Valor. Yeah, yeah which I, I don't have much time for, to be honest. That's the film about the... Uh, the Navy SEALs going yeah. into this mission, which actually has real-life Navy SEALs playing the roles. I mean, it is Top Gun without the subtlety, if that's humanly possible. Right. I think we get the message. <laughs> uh, on to uh, Saturday afternoon, 2.30, Matt Damon and We Bought a Zoo. Yeah, it's slight return to form for Cameron Crowe. We'll, we'll come on to Elizabeth... We'll mention Elizabethtown a little bit when we look at the new releases because of its relationship to Damsels in Distress. You know, I'm, we both really like Matt Damon. I mean, yeah. we had a joke last year about another you know, 27 films that he turned <laughs> up in because he was... Just that week. He, yes. he was working very, very hard last year. And, no, it, it is schmaltzy, it is predictable, and, no, you could sort of sketch out how the relationships are going to work out having seen five minutes of the film. Um, but... You know, if you go with it and you actually think, okay, this isn't going to be overbearingly schmaltzy like um, Elizabethtown was, then it does, it will satisfy you. Great, good. And in Saturday evening, um, we'll talk more about this in a moment, 21 Jump Street. Yeah. And the box office number for Berwick, 01289 330 Right, on to the, uh, the top ten then, shall we? Good idea. I guess we start with the turkey of the week at number ten, is gone. Yeah, it's, it's not terrible, it's just incredibly generic. I mean, I like Amanda Seyfried, I think, you know, if you want to, a demonstration of how 
pretty decent an actress she, actress she is, go and rent the Atom Egoyan erotic thriller Chloe, in which she, she holds her own against Liam Neeson and Julianne Moore, which is no easy task. And uh, the problem is that in this case she's fighting a losing battle against a very much a turkey of a script and just average direction. I mean, it's the kind of film that if you saw it, uh, if it was released straight to DVD and you watched it through a six-pack, then it would be just about okay, but when you expected to pay a tenner for it in cinemas, you think, no, that's a bit of a bum deal. Right, as we said, it's at Berwick uh, next Saturday, uh, action comedy with Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. It's uh, 21 Jump Street. Yeah, which is okay. I mean, it's, in terms of the remaking TV shows for film stakes, it's not quite up there with Starsky and Hutch, or indeed, I suppose... Yeah, all those other kind of retro things. So, I don't think it's quite up there, but Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill do the very best they can with the material. And it's quite funny, it's not much more than fine, but it will pass the time. Mirror, mirror, on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Not this one, unfortunately. I mean, no, Tarzan Singh, incredibly visually stylish, you know, costumes that could easily have been borrowed from Swan Lake, but he can't really tell a story. There was someone who uh, kind of wrote in to um, another film programme the other day that I was listening to complaining about Lily Collins' eyebrows being too big, and that was the biggest <laughs> problem they had with the film, which is an odd complaint. But the problem with Mirror Mirror is that it takes all the substance out of the Snow White fairy tale, which, of course, if you watch the Disney version, is incredibly dark and incredibly strange. And it replaces it with kind of misjudged, kid-friendly slapstick and postmodern takes. And it never really decides how serious it wants to be. It's just incredibly flat. Right. Uh, number seven. <laughs> a little bit generic, this one, I guess, isn't it? It's uh, Lockout. Yeah, I mean, as we said last week, it is essentially an unofficial remake of Escape from New York, which wasn't such a brilliant film in the first place. I mean, I like John Carpenter quite a bit, but that's one of his films that kind of just goes yeah. from A to B and it's not very memorable. I mean, I do like Guy Pearce, and it is a lot better than you know, John Carpenter's sequel called Escape from L.A., if only because it doesn't involve Kurt Russell surfing down a massive wave, which was the classic jump the shark moment <laughs> of the 1990s. <laughs> But the John Carpenter film does the story a whole lot better, and it, it, it does kind of, in the way of so many productions involving Luke Besson, it does borrow from B-movies so readily, it doesn't really have a life of its own. Number six, back to the animations and the Pirates Band of Misfits, and a voice cast list to die for. Hugh Grant, Martin Freeman, Imelda Staunton, Brendan Gleeson, David Tennant, Brian Blessed. What, what could you want? Well, exactly. I mean, I think it's really great fun. There's been lots of discussion about whether or not it's as funny as earlier Aardman efforts like Chicken Run or Curse of the Were-Rabbit. I, you know, from personal experience, I think it is, because I went to see this in a cinema and just, you know, spent the whole of the 90 minutes laughing hysterically. I think Imelda, the two performances out of those that you need to see it for, Imelda Stalden as Queen Victoria, who is, I mean, if you think she's formidable in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, that's nothing. <laughs> and also the cameo by Brian Blessed, which I won't give away when it turns up, because it is, you, you kind of see it and you think, that's the only person that could have played that role. So it's great fun, it's beautifully animated, you won't get all the gags first time round. There's so many time. roles in history that only Brian Blessed could have played. <laughs> that is quite possibly true. I mean, I certainly you couldn't imagine anyone else as Prince Volton, could you? No, no, indeed. Yes. Right. Uh, I suspect number five film I like more than you, although it should never have come out in 3D, Titanic. Yeah, I mean, I actually had a bit of a... When I was at um, the Lionheart dinner last night, I actually got into a bit of a discussion with one of our volunteers about Titanic. And she was holding it was the greatest film ever made, and I was trying my best not to sort of launch into a full-blown rant about how much I dislike it. I mean, 
Why, what is it you like especially about Titanic, notwithstanding the 3D? I mean, I wouldn't put it in my top ten films of all time, um, but I thought it was a pleasant enough uh, make of it. I thought uh, it was an interesting take on the story. I sort of quite like the music as well. Uh, I thought it was reasonably well shot. And unlike the TV series, which um, seemed to have no plot and no story whatsoever, or if it did, it was never managed to keep to it for more than 30 seconds, this one had a reasonable trail of a story, I thought. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I haven't seen the TV series, so I can't comment on that, but I think that's very well. I mean, I mean the problem I always had with Titanic in 2D was that it was... Despite all the goodwill that I had towards Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio, who do acquit themselves perfectly fine, the, the storytelling isn't brilliant. I mean, the script is kind of, no, half of it does essentially consist of them shouting, Jack! Rose! over and over again, and the whole yeah. kind of thing about this is where we met, and the dancing scene, I'm not sure about. So, notwithstanding my reservations about the film in and of itself, the fact that it's been converted into 3D just kind of shows how no, much of a... No, 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 no. What? Shouldn't do 3D. Well, the, but the fact is that it does show how much of a hypocrite James Cameron is. You know, having ranted on about yeah. how bad retrofitting was, you then go back and convert your most commercially successful film in the hope of getting another billion dollars. So, yeah. no, don't trust anything that James Cameron says and don't go and see it. Presumably now it's going to make a very rapid exit from the charts. Well, I mean, you bear in mind, of course, that when Titanic was first released, it was, it had huge repeat viewing. I mean, there were, there were stories of people who went to see it 20 times just for the bit at the end where, Decat where Kate says, Dirk, I'll never let go, and then she lets go of him. Yeah. So, I don't know, I think it might hang around for another couple of weeks, much as it pains me to say it. Number four is The Cabin in the Woods. Which looks really good. I mean, it does show that Josh Whedon has still got it in terms of horror writing. I mean, we'll have more of him a little bit later when we come on to The Avengers. Uh, I like all the references to, you no. Know, classic Cabin in the Woods films like The Evil Dead or um, Cabin Fever, the Eli Roth film. There's also lots of things like My Little Eye in there and, of course, the works of H.P. Lovecraft, which really come into their own in the last bit of the film. I mean, it's not perfect. There's been lots of you know, arguments about whether it's sort of whether it's scary or funny enough to be a proper horror comedy in the way that Evil Dead clearly is, but it's a very interesting piece of work, and considering all the production troubles that it had, that is quite an achievement. Number three, I'm not convinced by the plot for this one, but uh, Woody Harrelson's in it, so it must be worth uh, a watch. The Hunger Games. You would, yeah, I mean, Woody Harrelson is actually very, very good in The Hunger Games. That's one thing that we haven't touched on. Yeah. Uh, on our I mean, I think it's really great. I do think it's better than The Lord of the Flies. And it just, it was so refreshing to find a science fiction film aimed at teenagers which didn't just seek to bash its audience over the head with explosions. It's actually about, you know, about teenage identity. It's about, um, you know, loyalty. It's about, you know, dealing with death, let's face it. You know, it's a very interesting film. It is top-end 12 certificate. So if you've got sort of 12-year-olds who are quite sensitive, it, it's not the kind of film you take them to as a birthday treat, <laughs> yeah. but... On the other hand, it is a very, very good piece of teenage blockbuster, I and mean, I think the first, the first big blockbuster of this summer. Number two, Ewan McGregor and Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. Yes, which is pretty decent stuff from Lassa Halstrom. I mean, it is on one level ridiculous and schmaltzy and predictable. I mean, the whole idea that you've got this guy who's sent out to introduce salmon fishing into the Yemen to cover up the fact that there's been a bomb scare going off in Iraq and the Foreign Office wants to cover it up. So, you could unpick it if you were being unkind, but I really like Ewan McGregor and Emily Blunt. I think they've both got great uh, charisma and appeal. And it doesn't quite fall into the trap of using the Iraq war in an exploitative way like Lassa Halstrom's previous film, Dear John, did. So it isn't perfect. It is riddled with flaws. But in the same way, to use a kind of comparison that you like, in the same way with Saving Grace, 
in a way, the kind of, the quintessentially sort of British and charming feel of it carries it over everything yeah. else, and it doesn't matter about whatever flaws there may be. Yes, which British film directors are very good at. Yeah, I mean, Nigel Cole in particular, who directed um, Saving Grace, does have a knack for doing that, of creating films where you go, well, this, this and this is wrong with it, but you know what? It's really good. Yeah. Good little film, that one. Yes. And number one is Battleship. Which is rubbish. No, it's the film with the toy from the producers of Transformers. It's loud, incoherent and boring. And knowing how much you like Transformers, I guess that's probably... We not will leave it at that. <laughs> probably not a surprise. Yeah. So I guess that's not in your recommendations of the week. No, I mean, the recommendations, if you haven't seen them already, The Hunger Games or The Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists, failing that, either The Cabin in the Woods or Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. And next Saturday night, of course, get your tickets for Best Marigold Hotel. Indeed. It will be good. Cult Film is next after this. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Annick. Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Belongs to Doolittle there. And her first chart hit from, what, a couple of years ago, wasn't it? And Pack Up. And uh, a great singer. I'm a great fan. I'd like to see her back in Newcastle again singing. Mm. I would go and see her again. I that was really this, good. I saw her at the City Hall uh, two, three years ago. She was a um, warm-up act for Jamie Cullum. What an evening. Mm. Yes, could you think of a better evening? Right, not to be confused with the 2004 version, the 1975 original yes. of The Stepford Wives. Yes, which is our 60th cult film that we've covered on the movie hour. Yes! So, our Diamond Jubilee, are we yes. going to have to go out to God Save the Queen? <laughs> Something like that, yes. <laughs> okay. I'll see what you I'll, uh, I'll paint me strip red, white and blue. <laughs> Very good. So, The Stanford Wives, uh, 1975, psychological horror thriller which was nominated for a couple of Saturn Awards, Saturn Awards being the science fiction equivalent of uh, the Oscars or the BAFTAs, um, sort of not very highly revered outside North America, but they do have a little bit of weight. Based on the novel by Ira Levin, who uh, had previously written things like uh, Rosemary's Baby, which was subsequently adapted into Roman, by Roman Polanski into a, a really extraordinary film. And he also wrote The Boys from Brazil, which was made into a film by Franklin J. Schaffner, who's the guy who directed Patton. And if you go onto the Lionheart Radio website and uh, scroll through the back podcast, you will find our review of The Boys from Brazil. I think it was about June last year that we, we covered. Was, yeah, yes. quite a while ago, but that's at the kind of the city around. Directed by Brian Forbes who um, we talked about on the Christmas programme because he's the director of Whistle Down the Wind yeah. and also best one known as the producer of The Railway Children and we, we told that yes. famous anecdote about the, the end credits of The Railway Children where the camera's slowly panning forward on the railway tracks up to the Jenny Agatha holding the blackboard and if you listen carefully you can hear the cars going, thanks Brian! Because, he, <laughs> because yeah. he gave them a lot of the money that they needed to finish it. It's unusual among his features in that it has a largely Hollywood cast and crew, whereas most of his other films are British through and through, yeah. which is certainly the case in Whistle Down the Wind. And originally this was going to be held by Brian De Palma, the guy who made um, things like Carrie and the remake of Scarface, but he eventually turned it down and went off to make Obsession, which was his first modest hit, and the cult classic Phantom of the Paradise, which we'll be talking about hopefully in a few weeks' time. That's a very uninteresting sort of horror comedy rock musical yeah. based loosely on Phantom of the Opera. Scripted by William Goldman, who also who won an Oscar for his work on All the President's Men, and um, there's, which is quite fitting that we're doing this, considering that Robert Redford is currently bringing the Sundance Film Festival to London for the first time, so yeah. that, that links in very nicely. Apparently, Goldman and Forbes didn't get on because of uh, Forbes casting his then wife Nanette Newman in one of the supporting roles, and there were big disagreements about the costumes. Apparently, because well, she was just about the only big star in it, wasn't she? Yes, it's, it's in the cast list. Yeah, it, it isn't exactly a kind of. It's not a guest list film by any stretch of the imagination. It's unlike the 2004 remake of it, yes, which exactly. was a washing 
stars. Yes, exactly, and no, not much else. So the original had a had a budget of somewhere between two and four million dollars. It yeah. broke even just about in North America, and it's kind of gained a reputation very slowly as a result of being shown on late night television. So I think Barry Norman was one of the people really backing it, and it produced a series of made-for-TV sequels in the 1980s, and then the remake in 2004, directed by Frank Oz, who many people will know as the voice of Miss Piggy. And Exactly. And, no, would, the, would that it would be even half as enjoyable as his work on The Muppets. And, of course, do you know the, uh, the most interesting um, horror-related cameo with The Muppets? No. They turn up in the dream sequence of an American werewolf in London. Oh. Yes. So yes, so I do remember that. Yes. Yes, yes. that's the little bit of uh, trivia. Yes. So, yeah, the remake starred Nicole Kidman and, and um, Bette Midler, I think. And I know you're, you're a Bette Midler fan from what I, I recall. Yes, yeah. yes. She's about the only good thing in it. The rest of it is pretty god-awful. Yes. So, I actually saw the 2004 version, which I thought was okay. Yeah. Um, not too much more than okay. So, uh, you're going to have now to, to wend my way as to why 75 was so much better than 2004. Okay, well, let, let's set up the plot first so for people yes. who haven't seen the, seen the remake. Um, it follows uh, a young lady called Joanna Eckhart, who is played by Catherine Ross, who won a Saturn Award for her performance. And the film begins with her moving out of her New York apartment with her husband called Walter, who's played by Peter Masterson, their two children and their dog, and they go from this to bustling New York apartment to this uh, idyllic town of Stepford, which is somewhere in the American... Uh, well, it's it's not entirely implied exactly where it is, but it looks like... It looks a bit like Stephen King's Maine, in the sense of its evocation of sort of, you know, classic America with white picket fences and you know, mailboxes and so forth. Yeah, this sort of, I guess, this sort of mythical thing somewhere in the top middle of North America, which has got this sort of time never... F time has uh, left behind uh, feel, doesn't it? Yes. Um... Which it hasn't really. I mean, it's people I know who come from that part of the world. They uh, they may be slightly odd characters, but they're certainly not left behind in the nineteenth century. But yeah. it's sort of still this mythical view in America that somewhere in the Midwest is still back in the nineteenth yes. century, in the corner in of many some ways. in the corner of some foreign field that is forever a chocolate box. Yes. Um, so yeah, she moves into this uh, this community called Stepford, and once there, her husband joins the Men's Association, which is like the big community, which uh, organisation which runs uh, the the affairs of the town and organises charity events. And Joanna originally objects to it because she is a feminist to some extent. She's been involved with the women's lib movement in the sixties, and you know because it's clearly a sexist organisation but she reluctantly agrees to let him go because you know, he's getting involved in the community and she thinks, okay, what harm can be done? Yeah. Little by little, she starts noticing odd things about the women in Stepford, the fact that they are all obsessed with cleaning, cooking, and, as it turns out, having fantastic sex, and, uh, and basically have no time whatsoever for free thought, whether it's discussion about politics, no stuff other than what cleaning products you're going to buy or when your husbands are getting home for tea. Uh, and so she teams up with another uh, sort of like-minded woman called Bobby, paid by Paul Apprentice to kind of investigate what's going on. Shall I give away the twist, or should we leave that for later on in the review? Leave it. Okay, but basically Let's there leave are... leave everybody in suspense. There, there is sinister undergoings Ooh. underfoot. Ooh. <laughs> Cue the typical kind of woo from you, that's very good. So... It's interesting that you, we kind of led into this talking about your experience of the remake, because one of the things I was going to start with is whenever classic films are poorly remade, I mean, re how poor you can debate, but no, I, I think I will argue in any case that the 2004 version is quite weak compared to the, yeah. this original. If a remake is 
is quite bad. They have the side effect of actually putting people off seeing the originals in the first place, and that I, you'd agree with that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think so. Yes. 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 You don't often come out of a bad film and think, "Well, I better go and see the earlier version of that because it can't be much worse." <laughs> I mean, many who saw Frank Oz's remake of The Stepford Wives, which, like I said, I mean, it, there were problems with it in terms of they had to do last-minute reshoots. There were arguments between cast and crew, so you could argue that it wasn't entirely Frank Oz's fault. Yeah. But no, the point is that loads of people who went to see that either would just be so bored that they would have forgotten about it or would have been so enraged that they would have steered clear of the original altogether. And if they'd done that, it would be a shame because even after 35 years, this is still a smart and suspenseful film. And I know, speaking as someone who, you know, even as a seasoned horror fan, I was really creeped out by The Steps yeah. of Wives. So, no, I'm certainly not going to thrash it around. I mean, whereas the remake boasted an all-star cast and was in more, than, in more ways than one directed by a Muppet... <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd like that. Yes. The pedigree of the original Stepford Wives is found mainly behind the camera. So, you know, you've got a novel by R. Levin, who was a master of sort of taking a yeah. contemporary subject, in this case it's the male backlash against feminism, and sort of portraying it in a, in a quasi-mainstream light so, uh, through subtle allegory. It's you know, adapted by William Goldman, who, like I say, won an Oscar for All the President's Men. I think he, he, he's won a couple of Oscars since then. Yeah. He's, he's venerated as one of the grand old men of Hollywood screenwriting. And you've got Brian Falls behind the camera, who no, not only did Whistle Down the Wind, so I instantly like him, but if you look at some of his films like Seance on a Wet Afternoon with Richard Attenborough or The L-Shaped Room, you know, in which explores the whole theme of female manipulation, yeah. he was clearly the right kind of guy to do this film because he understands female characters and he understands those kinds of themes and he was just refining the thriller techniques that he tried on Seance on a Wet Afternoon. Yeah. So, one of the things that a lot of the early critics cl complained about the original The Stepford Wives was its slow pacing. Because the film is about two hours long. And they basically held... Because the novel is relatively slim. Yeah. That there wasn't enough in the novel to fill out the two hours. And by dragging it out a little bit longer than was necessary, the final act wasn't quite as tense as it should be. In fact, in hindsight, the gentle pacing of The Stepford Wives is actually one of the things that makes the film most distinctive compared to other thrillers, and it's, it's one of its greatest strengths, I think. Yeah. And, you know, you're drawn into this kind of, this very sort of beautiful world very, very slowly, almost unconsciously, so that your plight mirrors that of the female characters. And you start off with you know, completely open minds, thinking, yeah, this is really nice, and everyone's being very friendly, and so forth. Then you start getting a little bit unsettled, and you know, just starting to get a bit paranoid, and then it's only at the end when you realise, oh no, and then it's too late to escape. So it's very effective. I mean, when Forbes was interviewed about his intentions for the film, you know, he was interviewed, I think, in late 74 when they were in pre-production saying, you know, what is your vision for this film? He said, my aim is to make a thriller in sunlight because he was, in the same way as, you know, if you look at something like, well, the, the high watermark for that kind of thing is Roman Polanski's Chinatown, which draws on the tropes of film yeah. and wine. Oh, it's all yeah. about smoke and shadows and black widows and that sort of thing. And, and yeah. uh, what's his name? Oh, what's the name of the guy who plays, um... The guy who plays, you know, the guy who says, no, the future Mr. Gitz. The guy, John Houston, that's yes. the guy I'm searching for. And the guy who basically you know, fills up the screen with his yeah. all-consuming blackness. So Brian Forbes basically, as much as he loved Chinatown, he wanted to get away with the idea that in order to have a suspenseful story, you had to do it at night. Yeah. Or you had to do it in dark corners. And... So in many ways, you can look at the Stepford Wives, and if you're a fan of things like David Lynch, so Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks, 
and particularly Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, the spin-off film, it's a clear precursor of that in its all-too-perfect imagining of American suburbia. I was actually going to work because you lived in Atlanta for yes. quite a little bit. Yeah. Were there any parts of Atlanta in and of itself that were kind of, not in such an exaggerated way, but was there that kind of white picket fence, mailbox, yellow school bus aesthetic going on? Um, yes, I mean, I think it's uh, a sort of classic thing about the American subdivision, really, mm. um, which is this sort of estate which has a life of its own mm. and it's sort of slightly isolated isolated from the rest of the community because they don't have footpaths and things and life goes on within that community and you have to be in the community residence association and they'll typically build and provide tennis courts and they'll build and provide a swimming pool and yeah. their social events within it and yes you you have to conform with the the social norms of that of the subdivision yeah um so yes you could see the stepford wise even <laughs> happening in atlanta <laughs> even in atlanta yes. it's the last kind of refuge of mankind yes yes so and yeah even in a country which is sort of got got past the racial equality thing sort of almost mm -hmm. uh exclusively white yeah um that that's very interesting i mean so you have Step, along those lines, uh, Stepford embodying that kind of, you know, American dream, but embodying it to such an extent that you think there must be something amiss, because this is like, it's like almost those kinds of 1950s posters where you had the two adults and two children in the car and saying, no, this is the American way, and just kind of, no, this is basically this fantasy land that couldn't possibly exist. And by shooting the majority of the action in bright daylight, Forbes, like I say, he puts us in the minds of the characters because we're forced to second-guess our expectations of everyone in Stepford. So, you know, even as we kind of pick up on all the chocolate box things and think, okay, I'm really put off by that or that really repulses me, you think, well, actually, everyone around here is very nice, so maybe I'm the one who's being paranoid and not opening up and let's get... So it, it kind of tricks you into thinking it's actually not a thriller, which is, not, which is quite a good thing. It's this very quietly, but have you ever been to a shot? No should go and have a look round. Anyway, okay. move on. <laughs> we might edit that bit out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. Uh, so, so uh, you, you kind of find yourself invited into this world, but as the film moves on, this, this kind of creeping sense of dread grows, where it's not strong enough that you want, that you instantly know where it's going, but it's not small enough that you can just dismiss it as outright paranoia, and it only becomes a really kind of edgy horror film in the last 20 minutes. And even when it does that, there's a strange kind of reserved feel to it. I mean, there's a sequence where, where basically, we can't really talk about this bit without giving away the twist, so if you don't want to hear the twist, turn down for 20 seconds and then turn back up. The twist is that all the women in Stepford have been replaced with robots who have been programmed to, you know, just basically do cooking and cleaning and, you know, satisfy their husbands. Yes. And Catherine Ross comes in to find that her best friend has been turned into a robot and she's got sort of immaculately bouffant hair and bigger breasts and <laughs> dressed in so much yeah. more frumpy clothing and eventually... Catherine Ross's character flies off the, can off the handle and stabs her with a kitchen knife. But rather than bleeding, the character just sort of goes on a loop of sort of wandering around knocking over coffee cups, which in itself, you no, know, it's a bit like Westworld when all the yes. characters go yeah. wrong. You know? And considering how much you love Westworld, that is a very big compliment. It's an interesting story about when they did that scene, because 
when they were casting the film, Catherine Ross and Paula Prentice were, were very good friends because they'd been in yes. theatre together. And they were originally going to play each other's parts, so they spent a lot of time sort of doing through the read-throughs. And when they came to do the sequence in close-up where Catherine Ross has to stab Paula Prentice, because they were such good mates, Catherine Ross got very anxious and unsettled. So eventually what Brian Forbes had to do is he... The wide shot is done with, with Catherine Ross's back to her, so you yeah. kind of just see the movement of the arm. And then for the close-up, Brian Forbes actually shaved all the hair off his right hand and did it with his own hand coming Gosh. in. So, because, no, you compared to having this a, a shaking woman's hand, it's a bit like, you know, in um, in Halloween, where in the opening sequence of Halloween, you see the, the camera pans around to Mike Myers looking at his own hand, but it's actually John Carpenter's wife who's doing the stabbing. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's quite interesting. And uh, so, at heart, you have the film, which is a dark satirical allegory about, like I say, the male backlash against feminism. You know, the Men's Association, both as an institution and in its activities, is essentially a reaction to all the political and social freedoms that women have demanded and increasingly enjoyed since the early 20th century. And the men's response like a lot of you know, chauvinists in politics uh, leading up through all those kind of the suffragettes and those reforms is not one of kind of embracing women's freedom as something that might work but it's complete cowardice so they think you know rather Turn them into robots exactly <laughs> but it's the thing it's the whole thing of you know there's there's fantastic cartoons not james gilray but his his 19th century equivalent when uh, political suffrage was going on and they had the prime minister of the day kind of with with britannia standing over him saying political freedom for women and he's just scribbling on loads of people saying more votes for men 12 votes for each man that's the thing just to kind of combat that so basically they look upon women as an inferior species whose independence should be controlled and whose purpose should be restricted to like i say cooking cleaning sexual pleasure and gossiping to each other because in their view that's all that women are good for <laughs> i mean while its allegorical device, you know, turning women into robots might be a little bit bizarre, I mean, it's a science fiction film, so you will give it a little bit of leeway. You shouldn't just dismiss the Stepford Wives as heavy-handed because it's a little bit of an obvious allegory. I mean, ra the, the thing I really like about it is rather than characterise sexism, chauvinism, misogyny, whatever you want to call it, as something which is distant and extreme. In other words, you look at the film and say, oh yeah, but that wouldn't happen in my community, that wouldn't happen yeah. in my village. The film attacks the extent to which the inferior position in society has become normalised, and this is something I feel very strongly about in terms of, you know, you, whenever a story breaks about you know, pop stars performing in increasingly scanty clothes or something that happens on reality television in which it's nearly always a woman who's getting demeaned. Yeah. And it's a question of, you know, is it, in, in, in the kind of old school feminist sense, is it the men attacking her directly or is it her conforming to these false expectations where, you know, in order to be successful you have to take your clothes yeah. off and you have to behave like, well, like a trollop to some extent. I didn't want to use the nastier word because I'm afraid that there might be children watching. So, um... So Johanna's husband kind of joins the, the men's association with the very best intentions. Now, like you're saying, you know, you ha if you're in that kind of community, you have to kind of be part of the central hub. You yeah. want to make it look as if you're contributing and not just well, yeah. sponging off, the, off this lovely house with these beautiful gardens. And the majority of the scenes featuring women in the film are in domestic settings. So... No, whereas the men get to have meeting rooms in sort of people's living rooms or in you know, kind of halls or outhouses. So not outhouses, in big barns. That's yeah. a bit difficult to get them into an outhouse. All the women are, their scenes are in kitchens or in dining rooms or outside near swimming pools. And it's, you know, much more sort of domesticated. And all the, 
there was a deliberate attempt by Forbes to make all the interior scenes look like TV commercials. I mean, if you look at something like, for instance, um, there's an Italian film called Zabriskie Point by Michelangelo Antonioni, in which his whole thing was that all the interior scenes of these films about students looked like American TV adverts, not in the sense that they were just covered with brands, but it was that sort yeah. of plasky, plasticky, tacky colour and nasty music and that sort of thing. And it, it kind of follows on from that. I mean, the film is, you can judge the film as successful simply by the fact that so many male critics got it wrong. I mean, I think even, well, Roger Ebert didn't fall into the trap, but one of his colleagues at the, uh, at the Chicago Sun-Times described it as chauvinistic, because they took objection to the way that the men were being portrayed. Oh, poor soul. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, it's the kind of thing where Brian Forbes would turn around and say, well, that's kind of the point. It's depicting how, <laughs> how mean-spirited men can be when you let them loose on their women. So you have that on the other hand. On the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, you have the, the film examining the pressures surrounding women's you know, need to conform to male expectations in society. I mean, Joanna and Bobby spend most of the middle section of the film trying to form this kind of feminist organisation where you know, women can get together and sort yeah. of talk about their problems completely freely. And they run into lots of resistance simply because the women, whom at this point we don't know are robots, have all their expectations in life have just been shaped by their husbands. There's an early scene where Nanette Newman's character, who has thrown a bit of a wobbler at a, a sort of a house party and barbecue yeah. as we know later on it was a programming fault where basically she would just <laughs> say the same thing over and over again. She comes over to... Um, Joanna's house and apologizes profusely saying that she was drunk and uh, you know it's an, I'd never want to hurt my husband I'm really sorry please forgive us and will you come over next week and it's the whole thing yeah. of she's been so henpecked and so belittled and so downtrodden upon that she's got no life of her own even before we realize Yes, she yes. really does have no yeah. life of her own. I mean, even without its famous twist, if you took the whole last 20 minutes out of it, the film does very convincingly portray how much of the social order, certainly in the Western world, has been shaped by expectations of men, which is most grotesquely shown in, you know, when you have a look at the, you know, the nature of the wives' replacements, the fact that not only have all their personalities been sucked out, but they've actually taken the time to make their physical attributes that little bit bigger or yeah. that little bit more sticky-outy. Yes. I don't think we should yeah. say any more than that, but you kind of get the message. Yeah. It's quite a pervy thing to do. I mean, there is an illustration of both of these themes in the role of photography in the film, which is something that not a lot of people have picked up on. Joanna's a photographer by training, uh, no, which you know, if you know anything about photography, you need ambition and yeah. you need creativity and you need some kind of independence. And in one of the first scenes of the film, when the family are getting ready to leave their New York apartment, uh, she sees a man crossing a street with a blow-up sex doll and takes a photograph of it, which is like an eerie sort of foreshadowing <laughs> of what's going to happen yeah. to her. And the more that Joanna sort of stays in Stepford, the more her independence is stifled. And when she goes back to New York to try and sell her photographs, she can't because they're no longer any good. And she's kind of lost her drive for that. Like I said, when we introduced it, there's not many famous names in the cast. But I think like a lot of low-budget films, not like Westworld because that has your Brunner benefit yeah. for a bit. If you take your Brunner out of it, the Stepford Wives does benefit from not having too many famous faces. I mean, Catherine Ross is terrific as Joanna. I mean, she does have just enough presence and charisma to be commanding without overpowering and originally they wanted Mia Farrow for the role but they thought that that would be if they did that it was like we're trying to make another Rosemary's Baby and I think yeah. Mia Farrow was busy with other things as well Paul Apprentice is a very good match for her as Bobby I mean her performance is largely channeling Diane Keaton from sort of Sleeper but that's no bad thing because I, I, I like Diane Keaton very much and originally her role was going to be played also by Joanna Cassidy whom we will talk about next week because she plays Zora in Blade Runner Yeah, and a good supporting role for 
from Nana Newman, who's you no know, like the sequence where she goes, where she starts breaking down and just says, "I'll just die if I can't get this recipe." Over <laughs> and over again, it is you no know, treading in the same territory as Westworld in terms of how creepy it is. The one real problem with the original version of the Stepford Wives, or the one bit that that kind of divides people is its final act because I mean built up you now this kind of thriller in sunlight in which everything's chocolate yeah. box everything's nice and inviting when Joanna goes and infiltrates the men's association it is like you've wandered into a hammer film because she arrives in the case of so many hammer films in the middle of a storm and when she goes in it's like this kind of gothic mansion you are almost expecting Christopher Lee to come out at any minute <laughs> now under normal circumstances You'd kind of think, okay, you, you've, you've squandered all the efforts of earlier on and you've just gone for the obvious way through. But actually, because of how hard the film has worked to get to that point, you find yourself wanting to forgive it and you do kind of go along with it because the film doesn't lose sight of its substance. And the most chilling moment of where Joanna encounters her robotic double, which is, which is complete except for the eyes, which are deadly black. Yeah. That's creepy, whichever context you would put it in, because yeah. you know all the stuff yeah. that's come before it. So to sum up, it's a really great film whose message has lost none of its chill or bite. I think Forbes directs very, very well, bringing out the bite of Levin's novel with no respect for the audience's intelligence. He lets us unnerve ourselves rather than yeah. forcing all the dogma upon it. Very unsettling atmosphere, very good performances by Catherine Ross. It isn't perfect. I don't think it's Forbes' finest work simply because of how much I love Whistle Down the Wind, yeah. but it's miles better than the remake and it is essential viewing. Sounds good. Well, if I could have found it, I'd have done me happy birthday jingle now because it's your birthday next week. Yeah, I'm going to be 24 and like you know, the trooper that I am, I'll still be doing the show. <laughs> but to mark the occasion, we shall be doing Blade Runner as our cult film, which is my favourite film of all time. Well, we should, shouldn't we? Yes. Yes. So, shall we have a talk about the new releases? I think we should. What do you want to start with? Uh, let's start with the, uh, the latest comic book classic, I guess. The Avengers. Okay, um, which is being released in the UK as Avengers Assemble. The, the idea being, apparently, the distributors thought that UK audiences, if, if they saw the Avengers, would think, oh, it's the 1960s TV series. And we'd probably prefer that one. I think, well, <laughs> yeah, and, but of course, you also forget the 1998 Avengers film with Ray Fiennes and Uma Thurman and Sean Connery, which no, was... No, let's forget that one. Yes, let's, <laughs> let's forget that and move on. So, it's the culmination of all the previous Marvel adaptations. You know, last year we had Captain America, which you were very keen on. We've now had Iron Man 1 and 2, and the third one's on its way. We've had both versions of the Incredible Hulk, the Ang Lee version, yeah. and the sort of the romping blockbuster version, and uh, Thor, the Kenneth Branagh film. So it, this brings it all together under the helm of Josh Whedon, who, like I say, is the guy behind Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Firefly, and most recently Cabin in the Woods. The story is that Loki, who's the villain from Thor, played by Tom Hiddleston, who was also in things like the Deep Blue Sea, uh, has broken free from his intergalactic prison, you know, a bit like at the start of Superman 2, yeah. and uh, is wreaking havoc, you know, there's, if you go and watch the trailer, there's lots of scenes of, you know, buildings in, you know, the, the part of America that's always New York. It's always New York <laughs> that gets destroyed in these films. And the military turns to Nick Fury, played by Samuel L. Jackson, who's kind of, you know, formidable as Samuel L. Jackson always is, and he has a big eye patch on. He's the director of the International Peacekeeping agency called S.H.I.E.L.D. and he recruits all these different superheroes to become the Avengers and go out and defeat Loki once and for all. So it is essentially the D the the Marvel Comics equivalent of the Justice League where you know, in, in DC Comics you would have Batman teaming up with Superman and Wonder yeah. Woman and so forth. Let's start with the bad news. Um, the, first of all, it has exactly the same problem as the Justice League, which is there's too many protagonists. You're never entirely sure whom you should be focusing on yeah. and whom you should be rooting for and it ends up 
with people coming on and doing little bits of shtick. I mean, Mark Ruffalo does quite well as the Incredible Hulk, and Robert Downey Jr. is his usual ebullient self, but you kind of, it, it cuts back and forth and goes on for much longer than it should. Secondly, I'm not convinced that Tom Hiddleston is a very good villain. I mean, I really didn't like him in the Deep Blue Sea, and he's kind of fallen into playing these slightly effete posh boy roles, so that when you give him sort of long hair and a sort of strange yeah. accent, you think, yeah, you can't really do that. And I don't think they've still entirely solved the problem with the Hulk in terms of, you know, the, the, the 3D, because that was the yeah. big problem that Ang Lee had with it, and he wanted to do the character study of the Jekyll and Hyde thing, and then when it came to do the CGI, the Hulk was always a little bit too small, yeah. or a little bit too wide, or a little bit too fat. So, but that said, it's been made by someone, like I said, Josh Whedon, who clearly is a fan of the comics and understands how to do witty characterization. The special effects are pretty good, even in its most sort of head-bangy, quasi-Michael Bay moments, but it's not Michael Bay. The individual performances are quite decent if you take out the fact that you don't know who you should be looking at. I mean, Scarlett Johansson does manage to hold her own here, which she didn't really do in Iron Man 2. And generally, it doesn't take itself too seriously in the way that Watchmen did. I mean, one of the things about Captain America that we really liked was the fact that it was Paul it was slightly trashy. It knew that it was slightly trashy. So it's flawed and then some, but it's probably the best we could have hoped for, considering that it is essentially a massive tentpole culminating in uh, a series of tentpoles. And considering that Josh Whedon's behind it and he's a very talented you know, comic and, and horror writer, I think it's as good as it could have been. But don't see it in 3D. I'll stick to uh, Patrick McNee and... Uh who would you say is that? Are you uh, an Emma Peel fan? Are oh, you? Yes, yeah. undoubtedly. Because there's lots of people whom I've met who know think the show went downhill after Honor Blackman left, but I think they're in the minority. No, Emma Peel was definitely the best. Yes. Yes. Okay. Anyway, let's move on. Yes. First uh, D Hepburn and now Emma Peel. <laughs> yes. Glenn Close. Not quite the same feelings, but uh, no. just one like this is. Uh, Albert Nobbs. Yeah, it's the new film by Rodrigo Garcia, who is most famous for directing episodes of Six Feet Under. Um, it was a pet project of Glenn Close, who also apparently had a hand in the script. The story is she plays Albert Nobbs, who is, uh, it's set in 19th century Ireland, and she plays a woman who has lived as a man for over 30 years, and she's working as a butler in this very lavish hotel in, I think it's in Dublin. And her illusion comes under threat when a painter and decorator, played by Janet McTeer, also dressed as a man, comes to stay and they have to board together and one catches the other undressing and <laughs> the secret gets out, turns out that they're both women pretending to be men and there's a strange romance going on between Glenn Coase and a, a subsidiary character played by Mia Vashikovska who's in you know, Alice in Wonderland yeah. and so forth, a very good actress, she was also very good in Jane Eyre. This was nominated for three Oscars and Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress and Best Makeup. It didn't win any awards but it is, in the same way as Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, it's that kind of film where you feel like it's been made solely to get awards. I mean, like I said, Glenn Close clearly had a hand in the writing and it's clearly something she cares about. And from a casting point of view, you know, if you're doing a story about no androgyny, Glenn Close is a perfect piece of casting. <laughs> Ooh, well, we, because, better, we better edit that one. Well, no, 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 me the famous one because she'll be after you. No, but because she <laughs> she has always had this kind of androgynous beauty yeah. about her in the way that David Bowie has. I mean, even if you look in one of her uh, Fatal Attraction, which is one of her most feminine roles. There was always a sense that Glenn Coase could actually physically hurt someone. Well, no, yes. if you compare the Fatal Attraction to Basic Instinct, Basic Instinct, it's all sort of feminine wiles. And no, there's an ice pick involved, but there's not much else in terms of actual aggression. Whereas, with, you know, the bunny boiler scene in female in Fatal <laughs> Attraction, you kind of yes, Glenn Close, you are genuinely dangerous. So I really like her. And I understand that the film is trying to say a lot about sort of gender identity and gender politics and saying that Glenn Close occasionally looks like a man is actually a compliment in this case. 
The problem is that it is dramatically inert and very doer and so kind of withdrawn into itself that you struggle to actually get in and care about it. It's a bit like, in a way, Savage Grace, but not Savage Grace, because you have to sort of work hard to get in. So I would see it for Glenn Close's performance because she is pretty much great in anything she is. I mean, on TV in particular, in Damages, which, no, speaking is not a massive TV fan, she's great in that. 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> yeah. What I see. Yeah. Well, forget the rest of the characters, but the, uh... Yeah, her performance, <laughs> in, her performance in 101 Dalmatians makes that whole film worthwhile. Yeah. So, see it for her, but not much else. Okay. <laughs> comedy next is Damsels in Distress. Yeah, sort of comedy. Anyway, it's, uh, uh it's a new... <sighs> wait for it. It's the new film by Whit Stillman, who uh, is most famous for um, a film called The Last Day's Disco. He's kind of an indie darling in the sense that not yeah. many of his films have got widely released, and this is his first film in 13 years. Uh, the story follows a trio of beautiful girls who set out to change the lives of people at a grungy American university, and they're led by a character called Violet, played by Greta Gerwig, who was in the remake of Arthur and was in Noah Baumbach's Greenberg, more of that later, who basically sets out to cure people's depression by inventing a new form of tap dancing. And the film follows the girls now falling in and out of love with various men, and they're very self-conscious nods to Animal House in kind of the drinking and drunk and yeah. sort of debauchery but in a very much sort of raised eyebrow ironic way rather than the straight up Animal House way which is yes let's just have John Belushi sliding down the banister <laughs> in a toga and that's yeah. pretty funny so I mean which Stillman is an acquired taste I'll say that for myself and even from watching the trailer I could feel my fingers and toes starting to curl I wasn't outrightly repulsed by it but I just thought this is one of those films that could go either way yeah. and in its treatment of you no know, tackling teenage suicide and the depiction of teenage suicide, it does tread very, very close to the topics that Heathers talks about, which, yeah. now, as you know how much I love Heathers, that is yeah. very dangerous territory to go. <laughs> and the problem is that, now, whereas Heathers was really funny and had great characters and wasn't remotely self-conscious, you know, you felt yeah. like they'd just created yeah. this immaculate little world which all the characters were in. This reminded me of that moment in Elizabethtown where Susan Sarandon shows how she has got over her husband's death by tap dancing at the wedding of her young son. And you just think, yeah, there's only so much of this I can put up with before I start wanting to slap you all. So, no, I think that it will divide people. I think, personally, it's rather irritating. I think that Greta Gerwig, who is hailed as this great kind of mumblecore actress, it kind of only has one facial expression and just mumbles along. So, if you like quirky indie comedy, then see it. Otherwise, you might just want to hit them afterwards. Right, uh, audience and uh, critics alike seem to like the next one, which is Buck. Uh, yeah, which is a documentary, the first of two documentaries this week, uh, directed by Cindy Mehi or Mehi, which follows Buck Brannerman, who is an American cowboy who travels around America uh, helping horses who revolt or have problems with their owners. He's a, a professional horse whisperer, in, a, yeah. in essence, and he, he apparently has this very profound effect on the animals that he cares for. Um, it's not much information else about it, but it's an interesting story about someone who has essentially overcome abuse in his own upbringing. You know, I think he had a very nasty childhood. And it's actually, rather than growing up to be, you know, like the kind of the typical, almost Woody Harrelson cowboy of being sort of distant and mouthing off and, you no know, bigoted, yeah. has actually grown, has actually channeled his, that kind of getting over that into goodwill for others in the world around him. And there's a kind of feeling that this is a really special guy. It reminded me of, you no, know, there's a story about they're told about Alexander the Great, about the the moment in, in legend when they realised that Alexander the Great was going to be a great leader, was when they had this big black stallion whom nobody could tame, and Alexander yeah. the Great managed to tame it because he realised that the horse was afraid of its own shadow, and after that they, they basically put him in charge of the army. So it, there's a similar kind of through line to that. 
it does fall into the cliches of you know, the triumph of the human spirit over adversity kind of story yeah. and in the end it is a bit of a TV movie but there is enough in there to keep you entertained and certainly if you like horses then you know, you'll find it hard to resist. And finally after all the references we've made to Frank Oz and Muppets we end up with Being Elmo, A Puppeteer's Journey. Yeah which does actually feature Frank Oz in a, in, well, yes. I say a supporting performance but it is another documentary. It's a documentary about Kevin Clash who is a puppeteer who essentially followed his childhood dream of working with Jim Henson and basically made it. Excellent. Uh, it's directed by Constance Marks, who uh, made a film a while ago called Green Chimneys. It's narrated by Whoopi Goldberg, who, if you remember the Muppet Show first time around, had a fantastic appearance where the Muppets are trying to do reggae, but they keep playing it too fast. Yes. Yeah. And there's a cut to it. Right, I'm going to tell you this one more time. Sing the song slowly. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. So it features interviews with the likes of, like I say, Frank Oz and Rosie O'Donnell, who I think turns up because she worked a little bit with Jim Henson in the 1980s, uh, along with archive footage and most especially of all, never before seen behind the scenes stuff from both The Muppets and Sesame Street. Oh, yeah. So if we are fans of that first time around, definitely. Yeah. It's a very nice documentary. I mean, it is quite short and I think, again, it was made for television. But, you know, it's a nice little story about someone sort of having a dream saying, no, I want to go into puppets, I want to work with Jim Henson, and then through various little steps, going to make it. And uh, it's for adults, it's probably more interesting for the actual behind the scenes yeah. of all the shows yeah. that we grew up with. But if you've got young children, they won't be bored by it because, you know, loads of people love Elmo. And so, recommendations? Well, I think being Elmo is the film of the week, but if you can't, tr if you have to travel to see that and you want something closer to home, then the Avengers will do all right. Right. Presumably being Elmo is going to be a Tyneside one, is it? I or suspect it so. I suspect Tyneside primarily, but, you know, you might, you might strike lucky. You never know. Okay, so that's just about it for this week. We're both back for his birthday <laughs> next Saturday between 10 and 11. I'll be on doing sport between 8 and 10. Are you here this Thursday? Yep, Thursday 1 till 3 for Mix and Match with Mumby. Uh, don't worry, I won't be banging on about Blade Runner all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and coming up later today, it's uh, Jerry G, the Silver Rocker. He's going to be on between 12 and 5. And then Laura Wilkinson this evening between 6 and 8. So do stay tuned to Lionheart Radio throughout the day. And good luck to Annick Rugby Club this afternoon. Greensfield, three o'clock kickoff for that one. And we wish them the very best of luck against Keefley. Bye bye. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.